Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's Strategy Academy podcast, where we are going to talk about ICD-10 coding best practices, updates to the industry, uh, especially amidst COVID, and really some um, key takeaways that we want you know folks to understand, some really great fundamentals surrounding ICD-10 coding. So it's my pleasure today to have with me two guests, and I'm going to introduce Ruth Miller first, who is our VP of Clinical Strategies here at HealthPro Heritage, and really our subject matter expert, all things coding. Uh, she helps me out a great deal often. Welcome, Ruth. Thanks for joining us. And also joining us is Tim Claypool, who is a certified professional coder and certified coding specialist. He's the Compliance and Quality Audit Manager at our partner, Imagine. Uh, so welcome, Tim. We're so thrilled to have you. I know that you bring over 18 years of experience, and you are our go-to guy with all things coding for both Ruth and I sometimes with really tricky scenarios that come up. So I can't tell you how much I appreciate you and appreciate you joining today. So welcome, Tim. Well, thanks, Christy. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. Great. So hopefully, um, you know, as I mentioned for our listeners earlier, hopefully you all walk away with a, a really great understanding afterwards of some of those, again, key fundamentals that really are the foundation of great coding, um, compliant coding, um, some best practices. We're going to talk a little bit about the new COVID diagnoses, and then we're going to leave you with some really great key takeaways that you could think about at your organization. So to start it off, I think we should really start with some of those fundamentals. Um, so, Tim, I'm going to ask you this question. You know, what is the most important concept of ICD-10 coding that you can share with our listeners out there? Sure. So, there's actually two important concepts. I mean, there's many, but two of the most important are knowing your coding guidelines and coding accuracy. So, coding guidelines are things like code first. For instance, if a patient has hypertension and congestive heart failure, you always want to code the hypertensive heart disease first and the congestive heart failure second. Obviously, if you didn't know your coding guidelines, you might be inclined to code the congestive heart failure first because you said, oh, well, they have a, an acute congestive heart failure episode, so I'm going to code that first. But our coding guidelines tell us, no, 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 you've got to code the hypertensive heart disease first. There's other things like diabetes with, so we have diabetes with retinopathy, diabetes with ulcers. Um, you know, so diabetes with chronic kidney disease. And again, a lot of times what we see is facilities coding diabetes separately, and then they'll code retinopathy separately. But the coding guidelines tell us if they have both of those conditions, you code them combined and it would be diabetes with whatever that, uh, whatever that other diagnosis is. Coding accuracy is also really important. Inaccurate coding obviously can lead to denials. Uh, a lot of post-payment audits are going to pick up on this. Insurance companies then, of course, will want their money back. A um, couple of inaccurate codes that we see all the time are CVAs, so strokes. A lot of facilities are coding them as acute. And obviously, if they have an acute stroke, they're not going to go to the SNF, they're going to go to the hospital. And the hospital is where they're going to get that acute care from the stroke. And then the facility, the SNF, is where they're going to be getting their, their rehabilitation. So, for instance, if someone has hemiplasia from their stroke, you're going to be coding that hemiplasia due to the stroke as your primary diagnosis code and not the acute uh, CVA as your code. Another accuracy uh, issue could also entail NTAs. So, we have epilepsy. Another example I like to use is intractable epilepsy. So, if 
whoever is doing the coding is reading through the documentation. They see the provider saying, well, their epilepsy is refractory to uh, all medication. Well, we know that means it's intractable, but we only know that because we're coding professionals and this is what we do every day. And a non-coding professional might not know that, so they might miss that intractable NTA, uh, intractable epilepsy NTA code. So those are probably the most important things, the guidelines and then coding accurately. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head, Tim, and I see a lot of that in my audits that I do um, for PDPM specifically mm -hmm. when I'm looking at partners' charts. I see a lot of redundancy um, with some of the coding, like you mentioned, like diabetes listed separate from diabetic retinopathy, um, and you know there is so many codes to choose from. But I think that that's where you know, like folks have a really big opportunity is to um, you know start with the basics of coding, really understand the fundamentals and comb through that hospital record so closely and then work closely with their physician to get to that right end result. Um, and, you know, it might take a little bit more work in the forefront to understand some of those basics and to do that homework. But I think through, and hopefully you would agree with the statement, through doing that and instituting these best practices, it would certainly pay off with effective workflow down the road um, and eliminate some of that redundancy when, when coding selection. Right. I mean, one thing I see all the time is a facility might get really excited. Oh, we're going to get all this money because we're coding it this particular way, which is great on Monday. But then by Friday, you're getting audited and half that money is being taken back. So how much did you really get by coding inaccurately? You know, you got a little bit of money on Monday, but then it got taken back from you at the end of the week. Um, so it's yeah. best to just code accurately from the beginning, get the money that your facility deserves, and then you don't have to waste time trying to uh, make sure that what you coded previously holds up to an audit. So what sources are best to view diagnosis supportive documentation, Tim? The most important piece of the documentation are the SNF HMP. That's, that's the golden standard that we love to see. The, uh, the SNF provider really has the final say in why the patient is at the facility. So if we can get a SNF HMP and have that provider tell us why that patient is there, that's, that's, that's exactly what we want to see. And then to help us fill in any missing gaps that maybe that provider might not give us in their HMP, then we really like to look at the hospital discharge summary. The hospital discharge summary can give us further clarification. For instance, if the provider at the SNF is just saying it was a hip fracture, but then the hospital tells us exactly where that hip fracture was, which bone in particular, subcapital, uh, that type of thing. Let's say maybe we can even get an x-ray uh, from the hospital discharge summary to get a higher level of specificity. Uh, that's great as well. But the, the key standard that we really like to look at is just the Smith HMP, because their provider has the final say. Great. Um, Ruth, I would love to ask you this next question because I think that this comes up a lot, especially with our partners, our clinicians, our therapists. What are our thoughts and what can you explain to us um, whether or not you can use diagnoses from therapy documentation? So that's a great question, Christy, and I know this does come up a lot because I get asked that question a lot. So the best practice is that during our therapy evaluations that we're choosing medical diagnoses that are already in the EMR, that are already in the chart. We cannot diagnose. As therapists, we are not allowed to diagnose. Only a physician or physician extender in certain states are allowed to diagnose. 
So again, the best practice is to choose a diagnosis that has already been documented with supportive documentation by the provider. However, there are times during our evaluations where we do find that there is not um, that medical diagnosis or an issue comes up that we see that a patient um, has another problem. For example, in our speech therapy evaluations, uh, dysphagia is not always documented as a diagnosis, but yet the speech therapist observes that the patient has some oropharyngeal dysphagia or a cognitive problem if there is mild or moderate cognitive impairment and that there's no, way, there's no place in the chart that there's that diagnosis. So what does the therapist do? Should, what should the therapist do? And the answer to that is because we can't diagnose is we have to query the physician. We have to go and speak to the physician and talk about it. So we cannot just make up our own diagnosis. Yeah, really just to, um, you know, go out a little bit more of what Ruth said, um, we're really only allowed to code from provider documentation. That's usually a physician, a physician assistant, or a nurse practitioner. Uh, cannot code at all from any kind of therapy notes, dietitian notes. It can only be a legal provider. And in most states, that is physician, physician assistant, or nurse practitioner. So with that said, is there a specific way that AHIMA or CMS does expect us to query that physician about a diagnosis? Like, can you kind of sequentially walk through what that might look like, Tim, like a best practice? Yeah, queries need to be very, very, they need to be written very carefully. So you never want to have a leading query. Let's say you're looking, like what Ruth said, for dysphagia. Um, you cannot say to the provider, hey, can you document dysphagia? Um, or if you're looking for, let's say, the patient has uh, a decubitus ulcer, and that decubitus ulcer has not been di uh, documented by the provider, you can't say, hey, doc, you know, can you just document the patient has a decubitus ulcer? Uh, malnutrition is another one. Hey, uh, you know, this patient looks really skinny. Can you just document malnutrition? You need to send an open-ended question, open-ended query stating what the clinical indicators are. For instance, this patient has had extreme weight loss recently. Uh, we see they have a BMI of only 18.6. I mean, so you give them all the clinical indicators and then ask them what they think in their professional judgment uh, a diagnosis might be to go along with that. You can even give them different choices. So you can say, you know, do they have mild protein calorie malnutrition, moderate protein calorie malnutrition, severe protein calorie malnutrition, no malnutrition at all, or other. But you always need that other because you can't just say, well, here are the here are your only choices. You need to give the provider an option to say, well, it's something else, or it's none of the above, or they don't have this at all. Um, so the most important thing is your queries cannot be leading, and they cannot tell the provider what you want them to document. They have to be open-ended questions that allows the provider to come up with that uh, diagnosis on their own. Great. Yep. I've heard Ruth say that many times to partners and clinicians <laughs> out there. Um, definitely want to ensure that you are using those open-ended techniques and questions. That's a great point, Tim. So we know that ICD-10 coding has made a huge impact with both PDPM and PDGM. Um, so, you know, what trends have you seen? Um, Tim, we'll start with you and then Ruth will hand it over to you. Well, Morrisonists are realizing obviously how important it is to accurately code. Uh, a lot of them are finally hiring experienced coders or coding companies to help them code because they, they know in the past coding wasn't really as important as it is right now. 
Uh, we are starting to see documentation slowly getting better. However, providers, they do still need to be trained on the importance of documenting the reason why the person is in the SNF other than the go-to of weakness, because weakness obviously is not PDPM, accessible primary diagnosis code. So, you know, we're seeing now after a couple of years, they're starting to get it. They're starting to understand how important documentation is. They're starting to understand that we cannot code anything other than what the provider is documenting. Um, so yeah, we're, I mean, we're seeing improvements, but one of the most important things we really need to continue to focus on is getting those providers to just document clearly and precisely why that patient's there other than weakness. Right. Yeah. Ruth, what would you and like I'll to add? add? I'll just add that what we have seen also is that we have to remember the definition of active diagnosis. And we don't always see that. We see a lot of diagnoses that are still included in charts that they are no longer active and they've never been resolved. We have to remember that active diagnosis is physician documented diagnosis according in the skilled nursing facility according to the RAI manual is physician documented diagnosis within the last 60 days that has a direct relationship to the resident's current functional status, cognitive, mood or behavior, has medical treatment, nursing monitoring, or risk of death within the last seven days. So the reason this is so important is not only for our PDPM or PDGM, um, as it has to be an active diagnosis, is that we also have most, many of our CMI sites that are now doing PDPM collection for our long-term care residents. So we're going to be under the same guides and regulations uh, for ICD-10 coding for our long-term residents as we are currently for our short-term residents under MedAid. So it's really, really important to understand and to maintain our active diagnoses and to make sure that we are continuing to resolve the inactive diagnoses. Yeah, that's a big one, Ruth, um, because we all know that a long-term care resident can collect quite a laundry list of diagnoses sometimes. And you know, one example I remember um, is in some of the EMRs that providers use, they have communication between the active diagnosis tab and the MDS, and it pulls it right over to I-8000 or to the checkbox that's appropriate in section I. And things like sepsis or septicemia will come over and check off as active, but that could be resolved you know, months before or even longer in some instances, um, and can place patients erroneously into a higher hierarchical MDS um, rug category for a nursing. So say, for instance, a special care high where they could actually be a clinically complex. And to Tim's point earlier, you know, it's always best to have that accuracy in real time so that you're not having to stress or worry about denials or repaying anybody. So that's an excellent point with regards to the active list. <clears throat> Let's talk a little bit about COVID. I know that this is on the forefront of everyone's mind still as we continue to navigate the pandemic here. Um, I know that there were some new diagnoses that came about on 1-1 uh, and that did update the PDPM mapping. So Tim, what can you share with us about these new diagnoses? Yeah, so this is really unprecedented. Um, CMS has never in their history released a new code uh, except on October 1st of every year. So we had a new COVID-19 code, U07.1, that was released on April 1st of 2020. Um, and again, you know, this had never been done before. Uh, after October 1st, uh, we usually get our new codes and then they start and everyone, you know, begins to code them. Now, as of January 1st, we also have more new codes. Uh, we see 
you know, as COVID progresses, we see more and more things that are occurring because of COVID. I'm, I would not be surprised if we start to see pulmonary embolism due to COVID, just like one of the new codes we just received on January 1st was pneumonia due to COVID. Uh, a lot of these COVID patients are having uh, heart attacks and they're thinking that the COVID is, is causing heart attacks as well. So as science continues to understand what happens with COVID, CMS will continue to release more new codes. Um, but yeah, we have a few new codes that came out January 1st. And it's just, you know, the, our ultimate goal is to code to the highest level of specificity because we never had a pneumonia due to COVID before. We now have a pneumonia due to, pneumonia due to COVID code. Great. Ruth, anything you'd like to add to that? That is unprecedented yeah, so in that. Um, yes. So, so with these uh, added new diagnosis codes, the, what's on everyone's mind is the mapping. Are these, can we use these new codes, six new codes as primary diagnosis codes? So there's, as Tim said, pneumonia due to COVID, there's multi-system inflammatory syndrome, there's um, encounter for screening for COVID, which is the Z code and contact with, with exposure. Those were secondary codes and didn't map to a primary, um, a primary grouping. So um, when the American Healthcare Association actually analyzed these codes, they also saw that these are usually still used, continued used as, continually used as secondary codes. And right now the mapping still hasn't been updated to include these new codes as a primary diagnosis. But when they reviewed them, they saw that these have more are, um, are usually more as manifestations or secondary codes associated with COVID. So basically, um, the direction is that if COVID-19 meets the definition of principal diagnosis, then we should be coding that as the primary diagnosis. And, um, and then, and that would be the reason for the stay. However, we should be continually on alert that they, there might be an updated mapping PPM tool coming soon. So keep on alert for that. Awesome, thank you. So last question here for our listeners. Um, some really great key takeaways I think would be amazing for them to, to walk away with. So if we could just you know, leave them with a few bullet points of what we think could help improve their practice of ICD-10 coding at their organizations. You know, what would that be? Ruth, I'll start with you. Okay, great. So first of all, time. We know that uh, accurate coding takes time. And in the past, I know that um, the, the people that were coding, especially in skilled nursing facilities, just picked a code, the first one they saw, they opened the book and said, oh, this is a code, it sounds like it, it sounds right. But we really have to take the time. I actually read in a chart last week when I was, re when I was reviewing a chart that the diagnosis was diagnosis of hemiplegia from um, cerebral palsy. And uh, when I asked the staff, I said, did this patient have cerebral palsy or did this patient have a stroke and they had hemiplegia from stroke? And they said, oh, no, this patient had a stroke. It was an 86-year-old lady when she had had a stroke uh, previously. And I said, well, the diagnosis shows that it's from cerebral palsy. So that gives a completely different clinical picture when an auditor is first looking at the chart. Because the first thing they're going to look at is the diagnosis. 
And when they see that inaccuracy, they're going to start digging a little deeper and say, that does not make any sense. So we have mm -hmm. to take the time to do coding accurately, whether that means, as Tim says, hiring a certified coder that understands the coding guidelines and knows how to look into the, in the, into the um, coding uh, resources, or um, somebody else who is available to code, um, like we use our partner Imagine. So we have to make sure to take the time. The other is education. We have to make sure to educate our providers, our physicians and physician extenders. They are part of our interdisciplinary team. So helping our providers understand, and we've had great success. Tim and I have had great success when we've included the physicians in understanding um, why they have to document the reason for admission so clearly and make sure to um, keep supportive documentation in the chart in order to maintain those active diagnoses. Um, the next is IDT collaborative communication. So whoever is doing the coding, we have to make sure that the rest of the ID team is getting that information timely and then making sure we're discussing all of the, uh, all of the diagnosis codes that are in the chart to be able to choose the most appropriate primary diagnosis. So a good example of that is that I've seen in, in charts that I've reviewed where um, I've seen the diagnosis of rhabdomyolysis that has been chosen for um, the primary diagnosis. And perhaps this was chosen because it made sense for the resident or it made sense because it would map to um, a specific category. Uh, when I reviewed the chart, there was no documentation either by therapy or by nursing addressing the rhabdomyolysis. So we have to make sure that we understand whatever primary diagnosis we're choosing, that the documentation and the care that is being directed towards the residents so the, the last is that we have to also complete um, a great pre-transmission review to make sure that we capture all the appropriate diagnosis after all the assessments are completed and the physician has documented the supportive documentation to ensure that we're capturing all of um, the clinical uh, areas to provide the accurate clinical picture of the resident. Wonderful. Those are excellent points, Ruth. Tim, anything you'd like to add? Yeah, just, you know, really now that PDPM has been implemented and reimbursement comes from coding and not therapy, it really is, like Ruth said, more important than ever just to code accurately from the start. No one wants to be on CMS's radar, trust me. And if they go in and they start to audit you and they find that there's been uh, that you guys have been submitting inaccurate coding, which has led to inappropriate reimbursement, they will go back even further until they stop seeing discrepancies. So the most important thing is code accurately. Stay off the of CMS radar. If they do come in and they do audit you, you want a nice, clean audit. Obviously, no audit's going to be perfect, but you don't want to see issue after issue after issue. Uh, and just really just, yeah, code accurately from the beginning. Get the money that you deserve from the beginning. And you don't have to waste money on the back end trying to, um, you know, trying to make sure that your codes are standing up to an audit. Yeah, I agree a thousand percent. And talk about a return on investment, right? Like, like Ruth said, mm -hmm. investing the time to do it accurately from the beginning and investing in mm -hmm. services that could help support through that 
huge return on investment when the reimbursement system is structured surrounding ICD-10 coding. Like if you miss, you know, a single NTA, that could lead to thousands of dollars over that episode. Right. So it's right. so critical. Um, this is amazing. Thank you both so much for your time today. Hopefully our listeners um, really got some great information that they could take back to their teams, their collaborative IDTs, um, their organizations, and some best practices that they can start to instill. Um, if anybody listening would like more information on anything we discussed here today, or even Imagine Solutions and would like to connect with Tim, uh, please feel free to email myself at strategypodcast at healthpro-heritage.com. Um, and we just thank you all for listening today and hope you all have a wonderful day. And stay tuned for our next installment of the Strategy Academy.